You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. We now have the first vaccine that prevents cancer. The benefit of administering this vaccine to girls as young as nine years of age has caused quite a buzz within the pediatric medical community, as well as amongst parents of young children. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Kenneth Alexander, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Section of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Chicago. Today, Ken and I will be discussing the controversy, benefits, and concerns surrounding the human papillomavirus vaccine. Ken, I'm a practicing pediatrician. A child comes into the office for a checkup with her mother. What do I tell them about this vaccine? Hi, Bill. Well, actually, I think where we have to start off with is convincing parents that this is not a a rare problem. What we want to start with is the idea that papillomavirus infection is very common. And in fact, in our society, evidence suggests that by the time a woman turns 50, there's an 80% chance that she has or will have had an HPV infection. So the place to start is to convince parents that this is not a a rare problem. Do you tell them that the vaccine only contains four strains because you mentioned 80%. I understand the majority of those infections are strains that are not contained within the vaccine. You're right. If you you look in terms of infection, there are many strains that occur that are not in the vaccine. That said, if we look at the strains that you and I are most worried about, those HPV types that are associated with cancer, those are in the vaccine. HPV-16 accounts for 50 to 55 percent of cervical cancers. HPV-18 adds another 10 to 15 percent. So the 16 and 18 components of the vaccine are uh, put us in a position of preventing up to 70 percent of cervical cancers. To be a little scientific, is there something about those two strains, the 16 and 18, that make them oncogenic? Is there any understanding as how those two strains of the virus are different from the other members of the family? To be honest, we don't really know. This is an area of intense research in the HPV field, but what we believe is that one of the proteins encoded by the virus is the E6 protein. Uh, It's the protein that underlies much of the virus's propensity for causing cancer. So the current theory is that there are differences in the E6 protein, but the shorter answer is we don't know for sure. Are these viruses stable, or is there any concern about antigenic drift or loss of immunity so that by the time you reach the adult population, which is much more difficult to recall for a booster, that these patients could be lost to follow-up and at risk for infection? That's the billion-dollar question, isn't it? I think the short answer is, of course, we don't know. That said, these are double-stranded DNA viruses. And so unlike RNA viruses such as influenza and HIV, which change very rapidly, DNA viruses mutate very, very slowly. So I think up front we have little to be concerned about in terms of drift that might lead to causing cancer. I think the other point to keep in mind is that when you get HPV infection as a teenager, your likelihood of developing cancer is much higher than if you acquire HPV as an adult. Even if there were some drift or problems, I'm much less worried about a 35-year-old getting HPV than I am about a 15-year-old getting HPV. This vaccine has had a lot of backlash. Why do you think we're getting the pushback from parents? Is there a question of morality? 
Well, that's always a very uh, important question, and I think there's two ways to look at it. On the one hand, we can say, well, yes, this is a vaccine for a sexually transmitted disease, and for many parents, this is the first time they think about that kind of thing. Now, you and I as pediatricians know that actually the hepatitis B vaccine was probably the first vaccine for a sexually transmitted disease, but that largely slipped under the radar and parents didn't think of it that way. So for HPV, we are truly pushing the sexuality issue into the foreground. Now that said, again, we turn to that statistic and say that 80% of women get HPV by the time they're, they're 50. So when we start tying morality to it, we either have to turn around and say that 80% of people are immoral, or we turn around and say, you know, this is just part of the human condition. Have the parents given you any other reasons other than the concern about encouraging sexual behavior, other reasons for deferring vaccination? I think the concern about promoting sexual behavior has, has been the, the primary concern, and I think this is something you and I should address. Uh, beyond that, there's the usual concerns of, well, is the vaccine safe? And this is an important area that we as pediatricians have to address. The good news is that this is a recombinant vaccine. It is not a live vaccine, so there is no way that this vaccine can cause cancer or warts. In fact, near as I can tell about the only thing this vaccine can do is induce a brisk response and a brisk immune response against papillomavirus infection. In view of post-marketing concerns, apropos to what you just said about vaccines and complications that turn up later, with Menactra and Rototech, which are two vaccines that have had some post-marketing problems, do you feel that there is any rush to judgment about this vaccine? What we've got to trade off is the protection we get to young women versus the, the potential risks. And, and being on the vanguard always has some risks. The easy answer or the most direct answer is to say, well, you know, I have two teenage daughters, 14 and 17, and I gave it to them. So I think that there, while there are, you know, always risks of being among the first people to get a vaccine, if you look at the way this vaccine is made, the fact that it's purely a recombinant protein, I think it's going to be very similar to hepatitis B in terms of its, its risks, which is to say very low. And if you have just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and we are speaking today with Dr. Kenneth Alexander, Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Chief of the Section of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Chicago. We are discussing the HPV vaccine. What happens in a situation where a woman has been sexually active and had evidence of having been infected with one of the two oncogenic or papillomaviruses that can cause the venereal warts. Is it still a good idea to get the vaccine? Well, here's the good news. When these studies were done uh, that led to approval of the vaccine, these studies were done in college co-eds, so uh, a pretty sexually active group. And the good news was that only about a third of the women in the study had acquired an HPV infection. And of those that had an HPV infection, uh, roughly 70% of them had only had one. So the good news is in the women that, you know, the age group that will be immunizing, many of them will have never had an HPV infection, and those that have had an HPV infection will have only had one. 
So given that it's a quadrivalent vaccine, there is certainly honor, even if she's had one HPV infection, uh, in protecting her against the other three types. Could you talk to us a little bit about the cost-benefit ratio of this vaccine? And couldn't we just as effectively and for less money prevent cervical cancer through annual pap smears? This is going to be an interesting discussion, Bill, and we've, we've got a lot of work to do in this, this area. And if there's a compelling reason that would say, hey, let's, let's not move to immunizing everybody right now, this may be the area that needs the most discussion. In the United States, cervical cancer should be considered a completely preventable disease and that if women get pap smears, we should be able to prevent essentially all cases of cervical cancer. What this vaccine prevents is not pap smears. Women that get immunized will still need to get pap smears because the vaccine prevents only 70% of cervical cancer strains. But what this vaccine will prevent are all the expensive things that follow pap smears, the colposcopy, the cryosurgery, electroexcision procedures, and so on. So in a perfect world where everybody got pap smears and had good medical follow-up, we wouldn't need a vaccine like that. But this is not the world we live in. Furthermore, and although I can't say I've ever had the experience firsthand, uh, a pap smear is nobody's idea of fun. Uh, and certainly the procedures that come afterwards are, are emotionally and financially burdensome. So I, I think that as we look at the world today, the vaccine and continued use of the pap smears should go hand in hand. Another area of controversy has been whether or not to mandate the vaccine. And the state of Texas became the first state to mandate this vaccine. Why do you think the controversy is there, and how do you feel about it? Well, the, the idea of mandating the vaccine has some merit, not the least of which is that mandates work. If we, if we make the vaccine mandatory for attending school, kids get immunized. Now, this said, I don't want to make a rush to judgment here. The people who are pushing for the mandates are largely a group of women legislators that for very honest reasons, many of them having had either experiences with cervical disease themselves or among those that they care about, are honestly and sincerely motivated to preventing this disease through immunization. That said, if you go back to other vaccines that we mandate, the typical time period between approval of the vaccine and a mandate is years, often, say, five years. And what happens in that five-year period is a well-established process where we sit down and we debate our priorities and ask questions like, is it worth it, and who should we give it to? And we need to have that discussion before we commit what amounts to $120 a dose in a three-dose series. So it's a big investment. It may well be the right investment to make, but let's sit down and talk about the budget first. I was going to ask you how we balance the high cost of this vaccine against inadequate reimbursements to providers. Well, this is, of course, a challenge, especially in the real world of pediatrics. Fortunately, many of the insurance companies are stepping up to the plate. They see the value of this. And uh, although I don't think the data are conclusive yet, I think we'll, we'll find out what the cost-benefit will be. The other thing, of course, is that the Vaccines for Children initiative has also stepped up to the plate. And so we will have vaccine for girls 9 to 18 and finally, the manufacturer has included the vaccine in their patient assistance program. So 
for women ages 18 to 26, uh, they can make uh, application to the manufacturer. We're coming close to the end of our time, and I was wondering, do you have a take-home message for our audience? I think there's a couple of important points. I think this is an important vaccine. I think this is the most important vaccine to hit us since the measles vaccine. And so we, as people caring for children and young adults, should be in a position to promote this vaccine aggressively. This said, our understanding of the disease and what parents understand of what happens is often at odds, that we are much more strongly supportive of this vaccine than parents may be initially. Ken, I'd like to thank you very much for speaking with us today. This is Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Good day and good health.